Warning, the following message may be offensive to some audiences. These audiences may include but are not limited to professing Christians who never read their Bible, sissies, sodomites, men with man buns, those who approve of men with man buns, man bun enablers, white knights for men with man buns, homemakers who have finished Netflix but don't know how to meal plan, and people who refer to their pets as fur babies. Your discretion is advised. People are tired of hearing nothing but doom and despair on the radio. The message of Christianity is that salvation is found in Christ alone, and any who reject Christ therefore forfeit any hope of salvation, any hope of heaven. The issue is that humanity is in sin, and the wrath of Almighty God is hanging over our heads. They will hear his words, they will not act upon them, and when the floods of divine judgment, when the fires of wrath come, they will be consumed and they will perish. God wrapped himself in flesh, condescended, and became a man, died on the cross for sin, was resurrected on the third day, has ascended to the right hand of the Father, where he sits now to make Jesus is saying there is a group of people who will hear his words, they will act upon them, and when the floods of divine judgment come in that final day, their house will stand. Welcome to Bible Bash, where we aim to equip the saints for the works of ministry by answering the questions you're not allowed to ask. We're your hosts, Harrison Kerrig and Pastor Tim Mullet, and today we're joined by Pastor Conley Owens as we answer the age-old question, should we pray for Derek Webb? Now, before we get into uh, the discussion, the meat of this episode, I, I guess first I just want to say welcome back, Conley. This is like episode four or five for you, so five, we might as well yes. five. So you know, we're we're getting to the point, man. We we probably just need to have like your own dedicated. Uh, we need to hire, uh, hire part in the podcast. Yeah, we got to we got to hire you on, man. It's free. Yeah, it's, 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 it's higher, at least it's like higher, a contract, you know? a contract worker or something, man. We gotta we gotta do something for you. <laughs> but it's good it's good to have you back. It's good to see you again. Thanks. Good to be here. Um. So. You know, like, like we said, uh, the title question for today is, should we pray for Derek Webb? Now, I'm going to I'm going to confess. Uh, I'm going to confess to you guys that I actually, I, you know, I as a younger guy, uh, I don't know much about Derek Webb. So I'm going to I'm going to defer over to Conley and let Conley explain a little bit about why we're why we're even mentioning Derek Webb in this in this episode. Can I defer over to Tim and have him explain? <laughs> <laughs> who, who, who wants to be the oldest guy here right now? <laughs> yeah. So I go go ahead, Tim. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So uh, I, I guess the the context here is I I never really was that into music, so I don't know a whole lot. But uh, Derek Webb was the guy who was part of Cademan's Call. I remember some song that I had on some. Uh, you know, worship music album I used to listen to way back in 2003 or something like that. And uh, later on, and I wasn't, I wasn't really paying attention to any of this. So this only became, uh, I only became aware of a lot of this very recently, but uh, he left the faith at some point in the early 2010s, I suppose. And uh, now he's started making quote unquote Christian music again, or at least it's music about Christianity, but he's not making it as a Christian. He's making it as one who has left the faith uh, about Christianity. And anyway, recently I came across a Facebook post that had a picture of him and a dress and said, uh, pray for Derek Webb. 
And I responded uh, that we shouldn't pray for Derek Webb. And so, yeah, I'd like to I'd like to get into that today because I think the Bible actually does give us uh, pretty clear cl- guidelines on who we should pray for and who we shouldn't pray for and how we should pray for each person. So uh, I don't think that we can just broadly say um, that we should pray for each and every person the same way. Yeah, so right now, yeah, uh, yeah right now, Derek Webb is kind of, uh, wrestling with this category of an ex-Christian, so I think it's uh, safe to kind of uh, safe to put him in the category of an apostate. But what, what did you have, Harrison? I was just going to say, you know, as someone who is just like I don't know anything about this guy, uh, I all I have is I watched the I guess this is one of his you know most recent <laughs> videos, the one the one that you were that you're talking about, Conley, uh, where he's <laughs> number one. He's singing the song with someone who's named named uh, Flamey Grant, <laughs> and it's it's the the person Flamey Grant is a man in drag, and then uh, and then um, you know, the, well they're both in drag they're both in drag Derek Webb is in drag as well with blue hair and you know blue eyeshadow and these ridiculously large eyelashes it's it's pretty bad. I'm I'm definitely I'm I'm putting this in the thumbnail so that, so that people, if I, if I had a good if I had a good way to show the video right now we would be playing the video because this is just I mean it's utterly astounding honestly so it's very disturbing to look at you know and and I think some of the lyrics the lyrics were were uh, pretty blatantly um, you know like anti Bible you know where basically it's the same it's the same tired. Um, you know, hey, if the church doesn't celebrate you for who you are, then then the church is wrong, and you know you're beautiful. And it's like I'm I'm looking at Derek Webb and Dragon, and he's anything but beautiful. You're not persuaded, right huh? now. I'm not persuaded at all. You know, and and I guess you know, hey, look, if look, you know, if you're a murderer and the church doesn't celebrate you, then I guess the church is wrong there too. You know, and <laughs> and if you're a thief, then and the church isn't celebrating you, then the church is wrong there too. I mean, the church just needs to celebrate everyone. That's what Jesus would have done, apparent uh, according to Derek Webb. Jesus right? wanted us to be true to ourselves. So, yeah, he wanted he wanted us to follow our hearts and you know, forget the forget the fact that your heart is evil above all things. You know, <laughs> just ignore that tiny little detail and you're golden. I guess. <laughs> well, I guess um, I guess kind of only like the the broader. Um, the broader question we're asking, you know, we're asking, should you pray for Derek Webb is the question, should you pray for an apostate? So what do you think, Connie? Right. Why don't you tell us first what, is, what an apostate is, because maybe um, everyone doesn't know what that word is. So tell us what an apostate is and tell us why we shouldn't be praying for them. Sure. Maybe I can say even before that, you know, part of this, uh, you know, a lot of these um, – uh, a lot of the the titles of these episodes are for their shock value, right? Because it sounds like it might sound like I'm saying that uh, you know someone's sin is bad enough, therefore we shouldn't pray for them because that sin is bad enough. Uh, not exactly. I'm not. I'm not saying that uh, that there aren't people who God can radically save from the grave sins, or that He ever doesn't acknowledge repentance. Rather, He's revealed in His Word something special about apostates, and an apostate is uh, that word can be used in different senses, but the primary sense is someone who leaves the faith completely, having been part of it, and then renounced it, saying they uh, you know, don't believe 
its core tenets anymore. Now, this is this is different than another sense which some people use the word apostate, where it's someone who has left the practice of the faith, but not the belief of the faith. So, for example, uh, you might see the word apostate used to describe someone who has uh, fallen into great sin or something like that. But I'm, I'm using it in that first sense, someone who has rejected the tenets of the faith. And so the Bible, yeah, the Bible talks about this on a number of occasions. And I guess we could, uh, I don't know if we want to get into all those right now, because, man, I could just <laughs> talk for a long time. But uh, basically, God has revealed that this sin, there is no turning back from it. There is no repentance granted to the one who has apostatized. And uh, therefore, if we are to pray according to God's will, to pray contrary to that revealed will, that there is no repentance for one who has apostatized would be to pray against his will. And uh, very simply, not a prayer that would be answered. Well, fair enough. So, I mean, I, I think you've said a lot of things there um, in terms of, like, b- basically you've spelled out this responsibility to actually pray according to God's will. And I, I don't know that everyone intuitively thinks that way about prayer. In general, like as if the prayer has guardrails on it or any responsibilities. I mean, in fact, I mean, most of, most of the time when I'm, getting in trouble as it relates to the topic of prayer, it's normally um, related to the subject of mentioning that there's any responsibility that a Christian has to pray in any specific way at all. So maybe you could comment on that um, and you know make your case as to why we're supposed to actually pray uh, in specific ways. I mean, isn't it fine? I guess the question I, I would ask along those lines was, like, isn't it fine just to pray for anything? Like why? Why is there? Why can't we just pray for anything and let God figure it out? You know, right? Yeah, it it is uh, something that a lot of people don't get. I remember talking to one person who said, "You know, I know the Bible says that not everyone will be saved, but isn't it good to hope that everyone could be saved, or that, or to pray that you know uh, that, that everyone would be saved?" Right, and. Yeah, his, his idea seemed to be that this is a better outcome than the one that God has determined, and therefore I'm going to pray for that thing, even though God has determined otherwise. Uh, yeah, it's, no, we are never we are never to pray against God's will. We're never to think that our will is better than God's will. And so just like Jesus did, not your will but mine, we are to, we are to pray according to God's will. Yeah, I guess, I guess that's kind of an interesting thought because, you know, I think most Christians probably think, the same way that that person, you know, whoever it is that you're talking about in, in terms of like, Hey, I'm just, I know not everyone is going to be saved, but I want to hope, you know, that everyone will be saved or at least like, you know, most of them will be saved or something along those lines. Um, and, and I, I don't necessarily imagine that those people are thinking that, you know, coming from a place of, of like, Hey, I know better than God here. They're not, I, I don't think they're like probably consciously thinking I know better than God, but then the reality is if God has said, you know, not everyone will be saved. And I mean, just go read Romans nine and what, you know, what it says there about, <clears throat> you know, how God is determining, uh, who he's, you know, who he's choosing to redeem and who he's not choosing to redeem, uh, whether, whether you're consciously thinking it or, or, or not, it does, it does seem like what you are hoping for is, is essentially saying like, Hey, I am, I am more merciful than God because I want everyone to be saved and God doesn't want everyone to be saved. Right. That's, that's right. what you're getting at basically. 
you're yeah. asking him and you're kind of asking him to be more merciful than he's told, like revealed himself to be essentially. Right. right. And, and, and then at that point, you're basically, you're also at the same time asking God to not be perfectly just as well. Right. right? Yeah. You're introducing some new standard of goodness that you're asking God to conform to, uh, mm-hmm. not recognizing that he is the standard of goodness. And yeah, just to point people to some scriptures on this, uh, James 4, 3 says, you ask and you do not receive because you ask amiss that you may spend it on your pleasures. So yeah, if we if we ask just what pleases us rather than what pleases God, um, we won't receive it. And that's what you see throughout scripture is that David, he asks things that he desires, but he makes sure that they are in line with God's desires where he says, in order that your mercy may be known, in order that your your glory may be seen, so that I can praise you. You know, he has ways of uh, tying this in to, to what God has revealed about himself, that he desires to show these things to man. Uh, but you see, later on in, uh, I guess not necessarily uh, later on, because it's not the same book, but 1 John uh, 5, 14 says, and this is the confidence that we have toward him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the request that we have asked of him. So there's an assurance that as we ask according to God's will, because God does all that is his will, and his will is good, if we are asking for good things, they are actually, there is a a 100% assurance if we happen to know God's will in a matter. For example, if we pray for the return of Christ, we know that he will answer that prayer, right? There are mm-hmm. things where we're feeling out God's will and we don't we don't know for certain because we're uh, fallible beings, but in as much as we are praying in line with God's will, we can be that assured that we will uh, get the answer that we're anticipating. I think it's just so, I mean, that really is such an important concept that I think most people don't realize about prayer in general. I mean, before we like dive into more of the reasons why, um, you're going to tell us it's wrong to pray for apostates. <laughs> but I, mean, I think it's such an important part of prayer in general that most people, I think most people are just kind of um, treating prayer like they're blindfolded and they're throwing door, you know, darts at a dartboard or something and hope they stick. Uh, instead of just, <laughs> instead of thinking about like, what is God's will and how can I pray what I know his will to be? And so you know, people have, I mean, people obviously have that kind of concept to some limited degree as it relates to, like, I'm, I shouldn't ask God to let me sin or something like that, right? So I think most people would, would like, if if you're um, praying for something that's explicitly condemned in the Bible as, like, a sin that you shouldn't do, I think most people would maybe have some sort of break at that point. But then, you know, just related to the concept of praying towards God's will in general, that you do have to kind of know what his will is for the world and try to align your will towards that will. And, and, you know, there might be a lot of things that are just purely neutral, but, you know, trying to think, well, what, you know, how do I like align this request to God's priorities and God's values? And it might be that you know, there's a lot of things that you're asking for that have nothing to do with any of his priorities exactly. and values at all. Exactly. So, okay, I have, a, I have a question along along the lines of this, just to kind of maybe to help some people think through this issue. And we'll just use my life as like a, as the, <laughs> as the, uh, lab, as the lab work on this. Um, so recently I, um, I found an, I found an auction for, um, some guns that I want to buy. 
And so I put in, I put in some bids for them. And then I remember thinking to myself, like I was, I was driving home and I was thinking like, I wonder if I should pray to God and ask him to give me those guns that I, (laughs) that I, uh, put in bids for. Right. And then, and then, you know, I started thinking about it and I was like, man, that really feels like selfish desires that I'm asking (laughs) for right there, you know, but so, so that, that feels like selfish desires right now, let's assume it it hasn't happened yet. So I I don't know what, what is going to happen with all that, but let's assume, you know, I get, I actually get some of them, right. Um, whether or not, you know, you know, whether or not I actually prayed for it, let's just assume that I do get some of them. Now that, that means that, uh, it was God's will for me to get some of them. Right. So then am I, you know, uh, am I still praying contrary to God's will at that point? Because, you know, in the future I did actually get them or, you know, (laughs) does it not matter because, Hey, you know, like, that's obviously just selfish desire type stuff. How, how does that work? Well, there's a distinction between God's prescriptive will and his decretive will. So, uh, or uh, other categories people use are secret and revealed will. Mm-hmm. Basically, he has revealed, he has prescribed what is what is good. What uh, So, for example, you know, his glorification is good. He has uh, prescribed that uh, different good works are good, that other things are evil. And evil things happen all the time. So just the fact that it comes to pass and it's part of his decretive will, that it, it uh, accord, uh, occurs according to his decree, does not necessarily make it something that was good to pray for. You know, you couldn't pray for, uh, you know, the death of 100 people or whatever, right? And the fact that 100 people die, that that would be a good thing necessarily, right? Right, um, right. So you can't just, uh, yeah, you can't just pray for something and it become good because because it comes to pass. Rather, yeah, what we're talking about God's will here is that his uh, that his priorities be glorified in uh, in the occurrences that happen. I so, mean, he could give yeah, you those guns so that your yeah. wife could shoot you with him. <laughs> yeah. I mean, Count, we do have an assurance. Yeah, yeah, we do have an assurance that uh, that all things come to pass for the good of those who love God in Romans 8, 28. So sure. we do know that anything that does come to pass does glorify him. Uh, so in that sense, but if you're praying for it with the wrong, re- you have to do it, you know, with the right reasons, you have to know how it would play out to, you know, his glorification, et cetera. If you're just using that as a phrase, it doesn't mean anything. Now counter counterpoint here yeah, though. And, you know, I think this is, I think this is, you know, I don't know what you're going to be able to say against this, basically, but you know, <laughs> guns, guns equals freedom and freedom is good. So, you know, God's a go. God. God loves uh, God's a God of freedom, right? Yeah. God, God loves a gun toting American, you know, so there you go. I don't you know, I don't know what else to tell you, man. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, I, I do think there are legitimate reasons to, to own guns, as do you, apparently. Right. And sure. so. Uh, yeah, and multiple, multiple. <laughs> <laughs> and so, if we're if we're told to pray to God for daily bread and for other things, you know, I don't think there's anything wrong with incorporating anything that you might do that is reasonable into your prayer life. However, you know, it's once again, is it for your own pleasures? If it if it is for your own pleasures, 
should you even be purchasing the thing? Right. So like <laughs> it's the, the command to pray in this way is not just a command to limit what we speak to God about. It's also a command to, to change how we're living our lives. So if you, if you are doing something that you can't pray for God's blessing on, maybe you shouldn't be doing that thing. If you're doing something and it is reasonable, then yes, it's, it's perfectly appropriate to go to the Lord with that uh, in a way that is uh, that is acknowledging where it would fit into his his priorities. Once again, not for your own pleasures, but with his priorities. That's something sure. that yeah. Sure. That's something as I've uh, looked at James four, it, it and I've tried to pray um, prayers that weren't violating the spirit of James four. It really does cause you to think about well. Why am I asking for this? And am I asking for this for the right reason? And it really does con- like help you to like think about like what you're actually doing in your life and what your the decisions you're actually making. And you know if you if you can't pray for it with a good conscience, then you know as you're saying, it really is an indication <laughs> that maybe you shouldn't be doing <laughs> the thing. thing anyway. Uh, all right, I'll, I'll go. All right, fine. I'll go cancel the business. <laughs> Hey, hey, you may need them, you know, in order to stop this tyrannical government. <laughs> Conley really oh, needs them because uh, California just passed that bill uh, or is trying to pass that bill uh, that uh, will throw them in jail if any of his kids start to uh, feel confused about their gender. I'll, I'll, send, I'll send you the link to the auction, Conley. <laughs> Get your collection sure. up before that. Uh, but all right. So back, I mean, back to the title question. Should we pray for yeah. um, pray for apostates? What do you right. think? So I'm sure you're, you gave, you gave one kind of answer, but maybe elaborate on some more answers. So what's, what's the case? What's the case you have for why? Yeah, so I'm sure you're, yeah, sorry. So I'm sure your listeners are, you know, just dying to know the answer. Cause we haven't really, we haven't really gotten to like, <laughs> why, why shouldn't they? Uh, the very next verse I read, I read first John four, uh, five fourteen that says, if we ask for anything according to his will, he hears us. And then 15, the very next verse addresses this matter. It says, if anyone sees his brother committing a sin not leading to death, he shall ask and God will give him life to those who commit sins that do not lead to death. There is sin that leads to death. I do not say that one should pray for that. All wrongdoing is sin, but there is a sin that does not lead to death. So there is a sin that leads to death that we should not pray for. Now, I've pointed this out to people and they have said, well, saying that you don't have to pray for this is not saying not to pray for this. And I would argue that there's no reason that John would would mention that uh, someone doesn't need to pray for this unless the point is that you shouldn't be praying for this thing. Uh, Yeah, we are not to pray for this one who's committed the sin that leads to death. And so the question is, what is the sin that leads to death? And there is enough other scripture that confirms that this is referring to apostasy, uh, a complete leaving of the faith, a rejection of the faith. Maybe you could spell out, before you give those reasons, maybe you could spell that out a little bit more as to why um, that leap is, uh, or the uh, explanation you just give is uh, necessary. You know, so, I mean, I've talked to people about this verse in general, and they will instantaneously go to the, you know, the argument that you just made. And they will say, well, he doesn't say that you shouldn't. He just says he's not telling you to. So why is that? Uh, why is that such a poor response? Maybe elaborate on that a little bit. Yeah, well, I'd be curious to hear your thoughts too. But basically, if we're supposed to be praying, I think it's a poor response. Will, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, if we're supposed to be praying according to God's will, and He has revealed His will, for Him to say that we should not be praying for that, or that um, that He does I not say to pray for that, then it either means it either means that God has not revealed about this matter 
in which case, why not pray for it? Because if it is possible, then you, you should pray to lead this brother away from death, you know, or, or that uh, he has revealed contrary, in which case you shouldn't be praying for it. So either way, you know, James should be giving a firm answer to pray or to not pray. Um, the idea that he's, he's just leaving it up in the air, I don't know whether or not you should pray, or that it's like of a lesser priority or something. It's, uh, yeah, this is a, a poor way of approaching scripture that I think comes from a desire to, uh, a predetermined answer, basically. Yeah, I, well, I think, I think the whole idea, too, like just to piggyback on that a little bit, too, like the whole idea of praying according to the will of God, that seems like a positive instruction that we're actually told to model our prayers after. And so that – and I think that that's the thing that many people, they really um, – they I, I really think most, pe- most Christians think that praying according to the will of God just simply means saying – like adding that phrase, Lord will, willing at the end. And so, like, it, I think in their mind, what they think is you just pray anything you want to pray for whatever reason you want to pray it. And that's totally cool, right? Just as long as you, like, don't hold on to it too tightly and say, Lord, you can do it if you want or don't do it if you want. And so I, th- I think most people in their mind, that's kind of the hang up. You know, the hang up is they have this view of prayer that you just, like, you're just... Like I said, you're like a blindfolded person standing in front of a dartboard and hoping something sticks or something like that. Instead of like there being like a real obligation that you pray according to the will of God. And if there's a real obligation, even in that passage, to pray according to God's will, and then he says, I don't say that you should pray for that, then that should tell you that like if you want to pray confidently, you need to figure out what God's will is. And John just told you he's not telling you to pray for that. Right. So, right. Yeah, exactly. All right, but so so along those lines, then I mean, what, what's your case? So, so what's your case? So First John is talking about um, the sin leading to death. sin leading to death, and you're tying that to like how do how do we know what that is, right? So right. the next response that people are going to give is, well, whoever knows what that means, right? So who knows right. what that means? <laughs> Why do you think you know what it means? <laughs> who are you? <laughs> how dare you? Yeah. <laughs> you know. Uh, so what you, so tell us tell us why it's um, what it is. Yeah, well, if John expects his readers to understand what he's saying, uh, we are those readers. You know, we should we should sure. know what he's saying. And as I said, Scripture gives us enough hints. Uh, they're not just hints. Uh, scripture interprets Scripture, and it lets us know what this is. Uh, Jesus is clear. There's only one unforgivable sin. You know, he talks about all the different things that will be forgiven, but the one thing that will not be forgiven is blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. And uh, so— if this is if this is the sin that can't be forgiven, that we shouldn't be praying for God to forgive, and Jesus has told us what that one thing is, uh, that gives us an answer. And then, uh, furthermore, there's the related passage in Hebrews six, which likewise speaks of uh, the impossibility of repentance for the one who is apostatized. And so, when you realize that none of this makes any sense unless all of these passages are talking about the same thing, uh, that's when you are able to build this together and say, ah. Uh, these are all talking about apostasy because so you get, you get why the, does it why the, does it not, not make any sense unless they're all I mean I agree with you I'm just I'm, I'm right. asking you to spell it out so why I mean, spell out why they all go together and then spell out why it wouldn't make any sense right well it wouldn't make any sense in that we wouldn't be able to understand completely what's being said and they are written for our instruction right these words are written for us to understand 
So in order for them to be understood fully, fully, and that's what I mean by making sense is to be understood fully, which we know is uh, is a guarantee in a passage that's didactic like this. So if we can understand it fully, we should be able to know what the sin leads to death is. Uh, given that Jesus has said that there is this unforgivable sin, uh, we know that that's the same thing. Now, when Jesus talks about this blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, it's a little difficult to discern what that is, I, I would say, apart from having the interpretation of Hebrews 6, which also describes what it means to uh, be one who cannot be forgiven, who who will not be granted Maybe repentance. Maybe you could read Hebrews 6 for us. Yeah, where it clearly describes apostasy. So, yeah, let's go ahead and look at Hebrews 6. Uh, it says in verse 4, For it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift and have shared in the Holy Spirit, and have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come, and then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance, since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding him up to contempt. contempt. So, uh, yeah, just to, just to point out some things here. Uh, this is one who has once been enlightened, has tasted the heavenly gift, shared in the Holy Spirit, tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come. Now, a lot, a lot of people uh, worry or wonder, is this talking about the process of losing salvation? You know, someone who has the Holy Spirit and then loses it. Like, is it, isn't that talking about uh, losing salvation? Or there are some people who say, who have a, a Calvinist understanding of salvation. They say you can't, you can't lose your, um, you can't lose your salvation, but this is actually talking about losing your salvation. You know, uh, Charles Spurgeon, if you go and you read his sermon on this, he basically says that. He says, this is talking about losing your salvation. Now, this has never happened before, and it won't ever happen, but it's a hypothetical that could happen. It, it, it's a really it's a really weird take on it. Is that uh, like treating the warning passage as essentially a, um, like a, an impossible hypothetical that's meant to um, bring about perseverance, essentially? So it's a yeah, means exactly. of perseverance by telling you, by warning you against something that functionally can never happen. Exactly. Yeah, and I, I don't think that's a very sensible uh, interpretation of this. Rather, you know, we can see lots of examples in Scripture where someone has the influence of the Spirit on their life that is temporary, right? Like Saul in the Old Testament, you know, the Holy Spirit comes on him and uh, he prophesies. Now, a lot of people really get hung up on the pronouns of in versus on and stuff, and I think that's uh, honestly like a little misguided. But uh, also, talking about tasting the heavenly gift, talking about being enlightened, having tasted the goodness of the Word of God, what I think this is all really getting to is not an experience of salvation, but rather an, ex an experience of the goodness of God so that your knowledge of the truth is not merely a propositional one when it comes to the truth of salvation, but an experiential one where you have, you have felt the goodness of what God is doing in his church. Uh, in a in an immediate sense, not not a mediated way where you've you've heard about it or even you know even gone to church and uh, heard about it, but rather have experienced it more fully. So when I'm talking about leaving the faith, I'm not talking about necessarily the the child who grows up in the church and then they uh, you know when they get there to their adulthood they have more freedom and so depart from the faith you know say they don't believe it. I think there's still hope for for such a person typically. However, because, and, and the reason I say that is because they haven't necessarily experienced what this is talking about. You know, they haven't necessarily participated in the fellowship in such a way to have, to have um, been enlightened and tasted the heavenly gift. But one who has 
uh, been a part of the church in a larger capacity, uh, we have reason to say that they have tasted the heavenly gift. They have experienced these things. And as such, then when they reject the word of God, not just as a proposition, but as something that they have no excuse to reject as one who has experienced this goodness, uh, they're not losing their salvation. Rather, they're one who has experienced the realities of salvation without having experienced, without having been saved and then reject, reject that truth. Would you think that part of that is, um, you know, I, I'm, I'm kind of thinking out loud here, but this is something I, I've thought about over the years with these passages, but related to like tasted, um, the heavenly gift and like been once been enlightened t- having tasted the heavenly gift. I mean, over and over again, as you're reading through Hebrews, it seems like the frequent kind of admonition is, you know, today, if you hear his voice, you don't do not harden your heart as it did in rebellion. And I mean, obviously like the Holy spirit, he works on people in different ways. And one of the ways that he works on people is to convict them of sin, righteousness and judgment. And so like it, you know, if I'm trying to describe the difference between maybe like the kid growing up in church who, uh, as compared to the difference between what you're talking about, it seems like um, part of that might be just a real experience of conviction of the Holy Spirit that they have, like he's been convicting them and convicting them and they're suppressing right. that and unrighteousness and ignoring that. But would you think that that would be part of how you would explain the Holy Spirit language in there? Or how do you explain the Holy Spirit language in there? Are you, are you more talking about it in terms of just like phenomenologically, like um, experiencing the work of the Holy Spirit with other people? Like, is there any aspect of the Holy Spirit being at work in the apostate, uh, short of you know, obviously indwelling or something like that, that you're you think that this is referring to? Right. Yes, uh, there is some work short of indwelling, short of what the believer has, where, uh, and that's why Jesus is willing to call this blasphemy of the Spirit, right? Because it is, and He says that blasphemy against the Son will be forgiven, but blasphemy against the Spirit, you think why would why would He distinguish the Son and the Spirit this way? It's not like the the spirit is higher than the son. Rather, it's that the spirit is the one who communicates these convictions, these truths, uh, to the heart of someone. And then, if they reject that truth, it. there yeah. is a there is a higher level of uh, culpability, such that because they are crucifying the Son of God again, and that's the way it phrases, you know, the guilt of having done this. Uh, because they are doing this, God will never grant them repentance. And now, it's not saying that he would never forgive one who comes to him in repentance. So, you know, a lot of people get concerned that maybe they've committed the unpardonable sin or something like that. If if you come to God in repentance, you can be assured that you're, you are not one who has committed the sin. But he is saying that he will never grant repentance to the one who has committed the sin. So basically, you're saying there that, you know, someone who apostatizes themselves they're never going to want to come back to the true church in the first place, right? Exactly. Yeah, they may be tormented of soul. They may have regrets. You know, later on in Hebrews, it talks about uh, Esau, uh, you know, who found no place for repentance, right? Yeah, uh, he pursued it diligent with, with tears and all that. Right. Yeah, so there might be there might be torment of soul. You know, you th- even think of Judas, right? He had a lot of regret. But he found sure. a place for repentance. Um, so it's not that that worldly sorrow is not godly is not godly repentance. Um, so, but yeah, godly repentance will never be granted to the one. They will never have that in their heart. The Holy Spirit will never uh, will never regenerate them so that they would be born again and have that uh, have that uh, level of repentance. I, I should say, anything, level of repentance. it would just have be that like true a, repentance. 
if anything, it would just be like a regret, you know, for any sort of negative consequences they face in this, you know, in this life for their apostasy or something like that. Right. Yes, exactly. Okay. Okay. So would you describe that work of the Holy Spirit primarily in terms of the language of conviction, or is there another category that that's in your mind that you would describe it? The the thing that they're rejecting, the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, like, uh, is that um, mostly like through the work of the Holy Spirit convicting the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment kind of thing, or is there broader than that, you think? I think it's, I think it's broader than that. Um, given that this passage lists multiple things and doesn't just say having shared in the Holy Spirit, right? Having tasted the goodness of the Word of God, the powers of the age to come, having right. been enlightened, having tasted the heavenly gift. Like, basically, there's a there's a fullness to the experience of realizing the power of the kingdom and, and you know, experientially having engaged in it in a way that even though the child may be catechized and taught that these things are true, the one who has experienced it should they, who has truly experienced it, should they reject it, uh, having having been a part of it? And uh, have, there's, like the Pharisees and all that, they knew that Jesus' miracles were true miracles, and right, they and that led them to want to kill him. <laughs> right. So that kind of thing is the kind of thing you're talking about, essentially. Right. Yeah. And they're they're uh, part of the people of God. They are like the Hebrews, uh, book of Hebrews, making the analogy to the people in the wilderness. You know, these are. The people of God experiencing the works of God, experiencing the miracles of God as they're being performed through Jesus, they are they are seeing the powers of the age to come and tasting the goodness of the Word of God. And as they reject it, there is no, uh, yeah, there there is no forgiveness for that because so, they so, will never be granted repentance. So how does that work? You know, when you think about like the doctrine of Calvinism, one of the five core tenets of it, I guess, is you know irresistible grace, right? So how do we how do we uh, harmonize this idea of irresistible grace with uh, what the Bible you know the Bible is essentially telling us there are people who will experience they'll take you know they'll taste the goodness of the Holy Spirit and then blaspheme against the Holy Spirit you know so it seems like they're you know like in some way resisting now you know. I want, I want to hear your explanation because that might not be what's actually, that might not be the you know right. most faithful way to communicate it. But I think that, I think that's probably what some people are going to hear is that, you know, uh, you have this doctrine of irresistible grace, meaning anyone who's called by God cannot resist that call. Right. right. But then you and also I'm have the Bible. Irresistible. Yeah. And, and yeah, and, and some might hear you saying, Hey, it is, it is actually resistible according to this other passage in the Bible. So, so how do we harmonize those two yeah. ideas? Well, well, uh, yeah, in the reformed tradition, there's a distinction between the general call of God and the effectual call of the, of the spirit. So the general call is just anytime the word is preached, the effectual call is when the Holy spirit, uh, regenerates someone, you know, and they become born again, born of the spirit. And so, there, that general call may come in different ways. It may come with various levels of work of the Spirit. And so when I am talking about someone rejecting, I'm not talking about someone rejecting regeneration, you know, when the Holy Spirit regenerates someone, when he changes their heart to desire Christ. Uh, there's, no, there's no undoing that work of the Spirit. But if he presents this truth apart from regeneration and they reject that work, if he presents this truth in a in such an experiential experiential way that I've described previously, uh, then they are uh, they are apostatizing, and 
maybe maybe some more uh, explanation would be helpful. It, there's these passages. You know, I, I talked about how they are all linked. There's more linkages as you look around, and really, this is just one of those times where you only begin to understand this more fully as you learn your whole, at least New Testament, if not Old Testament also, uh, very fully. Because the next couple of verses in Hebrews 6 say, For the land that has drunk the rain that often falls on it and produces a crop useful to those for whose sake it is cultivated receives a blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless and near to being cursed, and its end is to be burned. And so I believe that's the author of Hebrews here alluding to Jesus' parable of the soils. Right? You have the soil where the seed is cast on different grounds. You have the good ground where the plant grows. You have the ground that turns into thorns and thistles. And you have the, the ground that's hard where the, the plant falls away as soon as the first trial comes. And so these are, these are different kinds of uh, faith, right? You've got true faith. You've got false faith that, that, uh, that uh, blows away very quickly, like maybe perhaps the you know, child growing up in the, in the church or something like that. Or you have... Uh, this apostasy faith where you have thorns and thistles. And so I believe he's interpreting uh, the parable. He's further interpreting, not that Jesus doesn't already interpret his parable, but he's further interpreting that parable to yeah. speak of an apostate. Yeah. I remember I I had to write a paper um, in school on, you know, the security of salvation for believers. And towards the end of the paper, I had a essentially what was like a, you know, quote unquote problem passages uh, for my position in terms of like, here's the passages that people are going to go to, to try and refute, um, you know, the security of salvation. And, and one of them was Hebrews six. And when I was, when I was studying all of those things, what, what you just mentioned was the, was, I was the thing that kind of helped me get through Hebrews six was connecting it back to Jesus's parable of the, of the, um, sower of the seeds, because, you know, like I think just thinking of it in the abstract, it's easy to get lost, um, you know, in the in the words that are being used in Hebrews six. But then when you think about the the parable that Jesus teaches there, I mean, when when you think about like the, um, <clears throat> you know, the the soil that produces uh, a, a plant with with a shallow root, like it says, and, you know, the sun scorches it basically, meaning, yeah, the first trial comes and they immediately fall away from the faith. Well, well that, or, you know, that has to mean something, right? Uh, now I said, I say fall away from the faith, you know, not necessarily in a true spiritual sense, but at least in like a, what we see with our eyes sense, you know, that, that has to mean something what, you know, and, and for us as you know, finite beings who can't always see and understand what's going on behind the scenes spiritually. And we, you know, definitely can't know the depths of someone's heart uh that means like there's times where you have someone who looks like they come to the faith right they they look exactly the same as any other christian might but then the minute the minute trouble comes their way or the minute some temptation comes their way they immediately drop everything and reject it Right. And so I think that for me, that was the th that was the passage that really helped me get through Hebrews six and come to a place where I felt comfortable to say this just doesn't mean, you know, what a lot of people often think it, it means. You know, I mean, I mean, Jesus had to have meant something besides just, you know, hey, I, I shared the gospel to someone and, you know, I guess they 
you know, they didn't look like a Christian, you know, because then that would destroy my, that would destroy my interpretation of Hebrews six that says you can actually fall away from the faith. So they didn't look like a Christian, but they are somehow a plant that did grow up, you know, that looked like all of the other Christian plants that eventually yielded, uh, you know, 60 times what was put into them or a hundred times what was put in them. So it, at that point, it just feels like it all falls apart basically. Yep. Yeah. Well, kind of, kind of question I have for you related to that too, is just um, like, just in terms of responses that people have, I want to ask you like about responses that you've gotten as you've argued with people over the years, but then I'll tell you about one response that I think it's I'm kind of an com- argumentative guy. What's that? Oh, yes, yes. I said yeah. because I'm such an argumentative guy. Yeah. Because you're so cranky <laughs> and you like to, you know, get under people's skin. So uh, by saying things they don't want to hear. But uh, no, so, you know, you've noted you've noted that there's some kind of subject um, or sometimes it's hard, right? Sometimes it's hard to know the difference. So like in terms of like with a ki- child who's grown up in the church this whole time, it, it may be difficult to know whether or not they're in this category. Someone like Derek Webb, Webb it may be much more clear. So the response that, you know, I typically hear from people related to this kind of topic is just to say that, well, because it's fuzzy, isn't it just better to be safe than sorry and just pray anyways? And so what, so isn't it just because you, you, you know, you can't really know absolutely whether or not they fit in that category. So shouldn't we just hope the best, hope for the best and keep on praying and what's the harm and just keep on praying, you know? So, so functionally, yeah, I mean, maybe there's some kind of category of someone in the Bible that we shouldn't pray for. But because we're not God and we can't judge the heart, shouldn't we just hope the best and hope for the best and just pray anyways? So, what do you what do you think, Conley? Yeah, I I think we don't approach just let go and let God, right? Let go and let God. (laughs) I I don't I don't think we approach anything else that way. You know, when (laughs) when you pray for someone, you pray according to the knowledge that you have of them and and what you. Think about their uh, about the state of their soul, given given what's been revealed, right? You don't cover your eyes and you know hope that it's other than what you've seen. Um, you know, God has given us information to work off of to pray, and more than that, we have this statement from James. That I do not say you should pray for such a one. Uh, we ought to be able to incorporate that into our prayer life and not just pretend that we haven't been given this. Uh, while it's not stated imperatively that we haven't been given this command that we that it needs to affect our prayers, but doesn't that mean that you're kind of like a hateful bigot? Like to, to, <laughs> well, I mean, are you be, are you being judgmental, like Conley? Aren't you saying that you're better well, that than people? I'm God? Yeah, yeah. I, I, I get to judge even though I can't see the heart. Right? Yeah, isn't it wrong yeah. to judge the heart? Like. You know? <laughs> You know, it's it's just something. Though we are though we are fallen, and I acknowledge that any one of my prayers might be, you know, a bit off because I have misread God's providence in some situation. I only have to go off of what I have to go off of, and uh, God has instructed that we that we pray according to His will in what He has revealed. And so I can't just I can't just reject um, what what I've seen or what he has said about about apostates or what I've seen with apostates apostatizing. So is the person who wants to take that route, they're basically saying that John never needed to give this command. And in fact, it's probably harmful that he did give this command because we should just be giving everyone the benefit of the doubt. 
All right, the follow-up then, you know, because we really don't want to apply this at all, kindly. So, uh, I mean, not, not us, I mean, but just people. <laughs> no one wants to apply this. Like, so you sound like a crazy person asking them to to, uh, to apply it. So is it wrong, right? Are you saying it's like it's wrong to pray for someone like Derek Webb? Or are you saying it's just worthless? Do you get what I'm saying? Yeah, no, that's a that's a good question, and I'm saying it is it is wrong to that at that point you are praying against the will of God, and we should not be praying against the will of God because at that point we're praying for what pleases us rather than what pleases God. So it's not just that it's not going to work, right. and you're wasting your time. It's that you're actively fighting what God has said and His decree. So how do we know when we're in that situation? So give us some guardrails. How can we be confident that we're in? Um, what are some guardrails to say, hey, um, you know, and it's not, it's obviously not rocket science, but come on, <laughs> like, give us some, give us some guardrails. I mean, to, to, to the, to a certain type of person, it certainly is like, um, who wants to make everything absolutely muddy. They can make this kind of thing muddy, but what are some, you know, um, guardrails to tell you that this is, you're in this territory? Yeah, I would say it's primarily has to do with the depth of their church involvement that, as they are deep in the community of God and they are experiencing the things that Hebrews 6 describes, that that then having left the faith, having rejected the tenets of the faith, uh, that is uh, that is apostatizing. So I, it really just comes down to the matter of discerning, uh, was this person who is now rejecting the faith, are they one who has once been enlightened, who tasted the heavenly gift, who shared in the Holy Spirit, and tasted the goodness of the Word of God and the powers of it, the age to come? You know, is that person one of these? Or were they, you know, just a person who, you know, heard a few tenths of the faith, thought that seemed like a good message, and, you know, believed it temporarily? What you're discerning is, is this the rocky soil, or is this the, uh, or is this the thorny soil? And the one who uh, is experiencing this stuff with, and then rejecting it, uh, truly experiencing the depth of that, uh, depth of People, that work of the power of God. So, so, thorny soil. um. You know, one question I have with with that distinction that you've made is, you know, it seems like essentially you're talking about the person who was at a like a faithful church to begin with. And, you know, they they left at some point, basically. Um, so, you know, when we're talking about this idea of like apostates, are we putting heretics in that same or false, you know, false teachers in that same category, you know, because, because like, sure, Derek, Derek Webb, like maybe, maybe he was in a good, you know, good church. And then now he's dressing in drag and saying that, you know, all churches should call them beautiful or they're or dra people in drag beautiful, or they're not real churches who are faithful to God. You know, that seems like that falls pretty clearly into the category you've made. But then, you know, if you think about like a Kenneth Copeland, for example, you know, I, I'm not sure, you know, I'm not sure where he went to church growing up, but you know, I, I'm just going to assume for the sake of the argument right now, like let's just assume he went to a bad, you know, bad church sure. to begin with, was raised up in that bad maybe like a Costi kind of type or something like that. Yeah, yeah. Just someone just someone yeah. who went who went to a who basically isn't hearing the real gospel to begin with and then takes that and, you know, runs with it essentially. So they're not they're not free of guilt in any way, but then in your mind, does that person fall into the category as well as someone who should not be prayed for? Yeah, a false teacher, you know, they're not necessarily one who has tasted the goodness of the Word of God. 
Uh, so, for example, you know, my uh, I've got a co-pastor who was a former Jehovah's Witness, and he was one of the early users of YouTube who was going on YouTube and teaching a false gospel, um, you know, back when he was a teenager. But he was a false teacher. And so, you know, God God saved him out of that. So it is it is possible for false teachers to be saved. However, what Scripture also reveals, now this is not apostasy, this is not the unpardonable sin, but does reveal that as someone is engaged in that sort of thing, and the Lord has handed them over and over, that there is a reality to what the Bible calls the hardness of heart. And so our prayers for one who has been hardened need to take a particular shape. You know what okay. I mean? Like we can't we can't pray for each thing the same way. If it's possible, we pray for it with the exact same, you know, level of uh, optimism or assurance or, or whatever, right? We we pray according to how God has revealed things. And we need to understand that some things are, in a very real sense, even though God is all-powerful, uh, less likely than others, or that God has revealed things that would make it uh, very surprising that he would answer certain prayers rather than others, right? So, uh, you know, anyone who had prayed for uh, the man I just mentioned, you know, while he was <laughs> teaching a false gospel on YouTube, uh, God answered their prayers. But, um, but yeah, one who has been deep in it, uh, the way you ought to pray for them isn't necessarily just to just to not pray that they would be saved. I mean, I suppose you could pray for their salvation, but it definitely has to be attended with a with the understanding of the gravity of of what hardness of heart is. Mm-hmm. So does the church maybe, help? Maybe, yeah, Tim has some clearer thoughts than I did on that last one. Go for it. Well, I mean, does the church help with some of this related to the binding and loosing and the keys and the keys of the kingdom and, you know, that kind of thing? Does that, uh, do, do situations like that where a church is formally declared someone to be an apostate, apostate give us an indication of like, hey, you know, whatever's been bound on earth is going to be, yeah. Bound in heaven, you know, loosed on earth. Would, would, would is that where you'd go with that too? With just situations to give us confidence in. I mean, not, not every church discipline yeah. case is obviously like a right. case of apostasy, but then there, some of them are. Okay, right. So, yeah. So I think that's a good question, and maybe this won't be the most uh, developed answer. But I would say. Uh, you do see two different kinds of church judgments distinguished in Scripture. There is the binding and loosing of Matthew 18, where someone's being removed because of particular sin. Now, that person can be restored. The Bible is very clear about that. You've got the man in 1 Corinthians 5 who, sleeping with his father's wife, removed from the church. And it is uh, quite likely that in 2 Corinthians 6, it's the same man being restored uh, back to the church. How, and you also have... Uh, I believe it's 2 Thessalonians 3.14 that uh, speaks of uh, correcting someone not as uh, an enemy, but as a brother. And I believe the, uh, and maybe it'll be helpful if I pull that up exactly, but I believe what it's distinguishing between is saying that this person could never return and and uh, hoping for their restoration rather than prescribing some uh, different level sure. of uh Excommunication. Some people have like different levels of discipline. Well, you're still a member of the church, but you can't take communion. And you, you know, right, right, right. Uh, the Bible really only has <laughs> two categories. Uh, you know, you're either in the church or you're out of the church. But for the one that is out of the church, that can be pronounced in a more or less censorious way. And so, uh, censorious meaning uh, disapproval. Uh, 
Yeah, if anyone does not obey what we say in this letter, take note of that person, have nothing to do with him, that he may be ashamed. You know, that's describing uh, the process of discipline. But sure. and it says after that, do not regard him as an enemy, but warn him as a brother. And so a lot of people take that as, like I said, saying that there's like some moderate level of discipline that should be used rather than sure. full excommunication. I think it's talking about full excommunication, but it's saying that he basically should not be anathematized. Uh, so he should not be declared to be completely accursed, that he would that he would never be restored. And where you see this, the church making a proclamation of anathema is in yep. uh, Galatians 1, where it says that, uh, but if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you receive, let him be accursed. So here you have uh, the, the Judaizers who have come. And remember, this is a situation where Judaizers are a part of the, you know, people of God. They're not, it's not like this distinct, uh, you right. know, right. church setting where they're, where they're being fed a false gospel and so teaching a false gospel. Uh, they are part of the true people of God teaching a false gospel. And uh, the church is being commanded in Galatians 1, where uh, the letters being addressed to the church that they are to declare them accursed. So and they, that would uh, yes. be giving some uh, guidance on like the type of situation you have in mind in those kind of cases, correct? Right. Yeah. So I do think that the church needs to play a role in making these judgments. Many churches don't. They just kind of, uh, churches today have very loose uh, standards of membership and uh, loose understanding of what membership is. And so a lot of these statements don't get made. But I, I do believe that this is not something that is, each each Christian needs to discern it in his own life in order to pray correctly. At the same time, uh, this is something that I believe churches as a whole are called to discern and make judgments on corporately. Sure, fair enough. Fair enough. All right. Well, so um, so essentially, as it relates to this case in general, you're connecting all of you're connecting First John, you know, the sin that leads to death, with uh, Hebrews six. And then you're connecting that with um, the impardonable sin that Jesus mentions in the Gospels. Um, what what other passages come to mind? You said that um, there's other connections besides that um, that you're thinking of. Yeah, well, you know, I'm I'm thinking I was thinking just about how a, a broad understanding of Scripture really helps ferret a lot of this stuff out. Like, because later in Hebrews twelve, just elaborating about, elaborating on those concepts essentially. Yeah, like Hebrews twelve talks about being aware of any root of bitterness that springs up. You know, a lot of people take that as, okay, I got to watch out for any root of bitterness in my heart. They don't realize that what this is talking about is, it's alluding to a passage in Deuteronomy that talks of a root of bitterness uh, springing up in the camp. It's talking about an individual who's secretly worshiping other gods. So that command in Hebrews 12 is not for each person individually to watch out for their own heart. Rather, it's telling them as as a community, as a church, to watch out for any individual who might be apostatizing secretly. Um, and anyway, there's just a lot of uh, related passages that, um, you know, if you if you can see these references or just click on the cross-references in your, you know, Bible app or whatever and, and discover a lot of these things, uh, it can be really helpful. Another passage that comes to mind, though, is Matthew 10.33. It says, But whoever denies me before men, I will deny before my Father who is in heaven. Right. And so there is a... There is a real gravity to uh, a rejection of, of Christ. Now, we do see in Scripture, you know, the example of Peter who denies Christ and yet he is restored. So I wouldn't, I wouldn't say that, you know, anyone who engages in any kind of uh, uh, denial would, um, would be subject to this, but rather that, uh, that there 
is a way to reject him after having had this experience where you are held uh, completely accountable uh, for that for that rejection. Um, there the are water, the wilderness wandering is kind of an example of that too, like where Jude um, um, Jude mentions that right. Like um, now, I want to remind you, although you once fully knew that knew it, that Jesus, who saved the people out of the land of Egypt, afterwards destroyed those who did not believe. Um, like it seems like that that the whole promised land experience and the wandering in the wilderness and the refusal to enter the promised land is a picture of salvation. And it's a picture of people who, as you said, they experience the miracle, miracles of God. Um, they they know that they're true, right? <laughs> of all the people, they've seen them, but then God was not pleased with them. They wouldn't enter into his rest um, in that way. But I, I don't know if you would go so far with all the I, I don't know. Would you would you put all the wilderness wandering people in there? <laughs> no, I'm sure there were some who were. Uh, I'm sure, there's some who saved. I mean, at least at least Caleb and Joshua. I don't. <laughs> at least maybe Moses. <laughs> maybe, maybe Moses was <laughs> <laughs> But I mean, it's, it is an analogy that's meant to basically right. make the same kind of point. Uh, whether right. or not it's applied 100 percent in that case. Uh, for sure, but <laughs> maybe maybe Moses got in. But yeah, uh, could you could you imagine Moses not <laughs> not making it? <laughs> well, Harrison, you you got any more uh, questions for Conley on this? Uh, um, no, no, I, I I think I'm good. But but Conley, do you have anything else sure. that you want to you want to say about this topic in general? Yeah. So there's one more interpretation of uh, these passages about the unpardonable sin that a lot of people give. So a lot of people say, well, this is just rejecting. Jesus all the way until your death. I So have you ever heard this before? Like someone saying basically that the unpardonable sin is just not believing in Jesus uh, for your entire life. Oh, yeah. No, yeah, I, yeah. I, I have heard a few. Well, I mean, I, I don't know. I've probably, I can probably count on one hand the amount of people I've ever heard talk about these passages at all. <laughs> uh, but I, I have at least heard that one time. Yeah, I, I think this is the most common one I come across. And so I would just say that... Uh, I don't know where that flips into the idea of blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. Jesus was talking to living people who had who had committed this. They weren't people who had gone all the way to their death uh, rejecting these things yet. So um, I'd say that's a reason to reject that. Uh, another thing, another thing I get is you know you see these you see these people on uh, social media and you know people telling you you need to pray for this apostate or whatever. Uh, should you perhaps do that, given that you don't know their personal situation, you're far removed from them? I would argue that we are much closer to them than the early saints were to some of the people that they refused to pray for. So one example uh, in early church history is uh, the Emperor Julian, who's known as Julian the Apostate because he had uh, departed from the Christian faith. And uh, Christians of his time uh, did not think highly of him, <laughs> obviously. And so uh, Gregory of Nazianzus, who's known for his uh, very deep Trinitarian theology, in his uh, Oration 18, he uh, this is uh, basically his the funeral sermon that he preaches at his father's funeral. Uh, he talks about his father and how his father prayed for uh, all people and uh, had no malice towards anyone. So even those who persecuted him, he prayed like Stephen did. Uh, but then later on, in that same message, he compares his father to Hezekiah, who prayed for the destruction of Sennacherib, and he said that his father hated Julian and that he he despised him with a perfect contempt. Um, 
And so, so you have here in the early church an example of a of a God fearing man that people greatly respected, uh, Gregory's father, who uh, prayed for his enemies even, but prayed for the death of Emperor Julian because he recognized that this was not one that God was going to save. There was no, there was nothing good to pray for for this man other than his his swift removal from this life. So that's a that's a stark contrast. But um, does that contradict the command to pray for our leaders? Yeah, uh, to pray for our leaders. Well, that's a <laughs> that's a good question. I think we should definitely pray for. Um, I guess he was technically praying for him. What wasn't he? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> he is, and there's there's a sense in which it's merciful for someone to be you know removed from this from this earth swiftly if they are heaping up more and more judgment for themselves on God from God, and there's no there's no hope. Uh, and and no one should take me as saying that uh, we should. You know that word hate. A lot of people don't understand. You know how that should be. How that should be used. I'm not saying that. You know, you go out and you find ways of assaulting someone, right? Or that you uh, vigilante that, justice or something. Yeah, vigilante justice, or even that if you were in a situation where you know he was dying and needed your help, you weren't you know compassionate or whatever, right? Because <laughs> you you've got you've got Jesus saying that you should love your enemies because God loves His enemies, but then you also have passages uh, like. In the Psalms, uh, where Psalm 139, 21 through 22 says, Do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord? And do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with a complete hatred. I count them my enemies. So as we are walking the Christian life, we need to emulate God and hate the way he hates, love the way he loves. And what that is, is if he is revealed about someone's soul, that their soul is given over, then we should pray accordingly. But as he is still merciful to their body, uh, we must be as well. And so I, I think there is a way to, to both love and hate someone simultaneously that, uh, that Scripture calls for as we emulate God's own character who loves his enemies. Well, it would give us some opportunities to pray some more imprecatory prayers, right? Exactly, yeah. And, well, and, most Christians just pretend those aren't there. <laughs> and you all have an episode on that not too long ago that people can go look at. But, uh, yeah, yeah. Exactly. We should give us an opportunity. (laughs) (laughs) I know you've been itching to pray this. Here's a case. Here's a good, good opportunity to get it all out of your system. Yeah. Yeah, Here's a, here's a uh, example. Here's an example for you to think through. What what do we pray for Joe Biden? Yeah. Well, I don't believe Joe Biden is an apostate. You know, he's okay. That false church example that you gave. Right. And he's not even living in line with that false church. So, um, you know, while while what I said about hardening of heart as someone continues in sin for very long times, while all that is sure. is perfectly applicable, you know, there's still hope for a soul. God could okay. uh, be merciful to, to Joe Biden. We should, as he is our ruler, pray for his salvation. Pray, pray for his salvation. Don't pray for his death. No. Um, yeah. Pray but, for good. Pray for sound for sound judgment. That kind of stuff. Right. Right. Yeah. Exactly. Okay. And as. Uh, yeah, we're talking about imprecatory prayers. Yeah, typically people say, well, imprecatory prayers, you just pray those generally. You don't pray those for specific people. But, uh, you know, here in these circumstances, I think it is right for us to, to pray imprecatory prayers specifically for apostates. Um, that, that God would be just in his judgments, and he has declared what his judgment is in this matter. Okay. All right. Well, I think that's a good place for us to start wrapping up the episode on. You know, one one thing I was thinking about, Conley, as we were talking through all this is, um, when, whenever I talk to people about who ask me about Calvinism, for example, 
most of the time it's people who who uh, are opposed to the doctrine of Calvinism. And one of one of the things I tell them is, you know, hey, look, this doctrine is at at least you have to admit that as you read the Bible, the Bible at least leaves the door open for Calvin, the doctrine of Calvinism to be true. Okay. So if it at least is, you know, obviously I think it just teaches this doctrine to us, but you know, I'm trying to appeal, I'm trying to appeal to them. Uh, if the Bible at least, uh, leaves the door open for Calvinism to be true, uh, then you have to ask yourself if it is true, am I okay with that? Like, or, or am I at a place where I'd say, even if it is true, I'm not okay with it, yeah. you know, and that, and that's sort of a good, that's sort of a good like test of your own heart to see, am I actually opposing this because I'm just truly convinced the Bible doesn't teach it? Or am I actually opposed to it because I just don't like it? And I think this is probably a similar, a similar idea where at, at least you have to admit that at least the Bible leaves the door open you know, for this to, those verses have to mean something, you know, so, so they're at least leaving the door open for, you know, what you're arguing for. And people need to ask themselves, Hey, if it is true, am I okay with that? Or am I not okay with the God, you know, who, who is actively condemning some people and not giving them, you know, a, a chance at repentance at that point. Right. Is, is that a fair, is that a fair you know, thing to say, or, or what, what are your thoughts on that? Absolutely. Yeah. So many people say, well, if, if Calvinism is true, I wouldn't want to worship a God like that. Uh, right. You know, right. you do have to, you do have to check your own heart and make sure you're, <laughs> you know, uh, yeah, that your beliefs are being informed by scripture rather than your own sensibilities and, and sense of what good and love and right and wrong. Are. Right. Okay. Well, you know, I think that's something for, you know, all of our listeners to think through who, who maybe have, you know, whether you're opposed to this idea or maybe you've just never thought about it before. I think that is a good check to think through is, you know, Hey, if this is true, am I okay with that? Or am I in the, you know, am I in that position that says, no, if I'm not going to worship a God who does that. And if that's the case, then I think you're in a very dangerous place in general and you really need to repent of a lot of things there. But, you know, our hope with having these conversations is that you think through, um, you know, we you think through uh, what we're talking about, and you go and you study these scriptures for yourself, and you you ask yourself, you know, what do these actually mean? And 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 don't go to all the people who like like Tim says this a lot. Don't go to all the people who are going to tell you everything that this verse doesn't mean. Right? Go to go and find the people who are going to explain to you what these verses actually mean. And and that's that's part of the hope. You know, that's part of the goal with what we're doing here is try to explain these things. So, um, you know, our, our hope is that this is helpful for you and that this is glorifying to God and that this isn't, this encourages you to pursue, uh, faithfulness to the things that God, um, you know, has commanded us to do. So as we close out Conley, you know, do you have anything, um, you know, do you want to, um, point us back to any work that you're doing right now or any helpful resources on this topic? Yeah, so I would highly recommend for anyone who's uh, interested in this subject, uh, John Owen's book, Apostasy from the Gospel, uh, specifically the first chapter. If you're just trying to understand apostasy, the first chapter is really excellent. You can uh, stop reading after that if you're, if you're just looking for something short. Uh, however, 
The rest of the book is about that second kind of apostasy I said, that kind of apostasy where you uh, just generally um, fall away from the practice of the faith, not necessarily reject the tenets of the faith. And the rest of the book is an incredibly good uh, devotional thing to uh, ask yourself whether you're being sufficiently watchful over your own soul so that you might not fall into uh, that second form of apostasy. But yeah, John Owen, Apostasy from the Gospel. Uh, very good work. Okay. All right. Well, thanks again, Conley, for coming on. And uh, you know, we appreciate all you guys out there who support us week in and week out. You can like and subscribe our YouTube page. If you want to support us financially, there's a link in the description to go to our Patreon page. And until the next episode, we'll see you. This has been another episode of Bible Bashed. We hope you have been encouraged and blessed through our discussion. We thank you for all your support and ask you to continue to like and subscribe to Bible Bashed and share our podcast with your friends and on social media. Please reach out to us with your questions, pushback, and potential topics for us to discuss in future episodes at BibleBashedPodcast at gmail.com and consider supporting us through Patreon. If you would like to be Bible Bashed personally, then please know that we also offer free biblical counseling, which you can take advantage of by emailing us. Now, go boldly and obey the truth in the midst of a biblically illiterate world who will be perpetually offended by your every move.